0: Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. In this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, we hear from Dr. Mark Torres-Holmes about his specialty and his path in medicine. Dr. Mark Torres-Holmes is an otorhinolaryngologist, or ENT, with a special interest in and further training as a head and neck surgeon. He specifically focuses on benign and malignant tumours and conditions of structures within the head and neck, as well as rare paediatric airway and neck lump problems. He developed this interest while working as a specialist consultant at the Charlotte-McDecker-Johannesburg Academic Hospital for four years where he was mentored by Professor PC Modi. At that time, it became apparent that a multidisciplinary team approach to managing complex head and neck cancers was intuitively better, and subsequently, this fact has been borne out with robust evidence of improved patient outcomes and quality of life. The importance of MDTs was a feature of our conversation when I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Mark in his practice in Santon. Dr. Mark currently works as a consultant surgeon with the Morningside Head and Neck Multidisciplinary Team who meet weekly to discuss patients' head and neck problems. Their primary goals in patient care are to get rid of cancer and prevent recurrence while implementing measures to ensure the best possible quality of life after treatment. We had an engaging conversation about the specialist training required to become an ENT and a head and neck surgeon, the perks of the specialty, the importance of MDTs in patient care, the limitations and problems that exist in both the private and public health sectors, and how to never lose your heart for helping people, amongst so much more. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do as well. Without further ado, here is Dr. Mark. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mark. Thank you, Simon. It's good to be here. Uh, So wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for making time. Um, So let's begin with a bit of a biography. Tell us
1: about yourself. Where did you graduate medical school from? Uh, University of Pretoria. Tux, 2001. And were you at devoted students? Uh, Yes, I think I was pretty diligent in my work ethic and uh, pretty much tried not to miss any classes. Um, But I wouldn't say I was an A student. I never got uh, super distinctions, but I was a pretty, you know, pretty solid, consistent student, I think, yeah. Uh, so graduated from techs, mm-hmm. um and then would have done internship after where did you do internship from? so I was expecting to be a Cape Tonian. I wanted to go to Cape Town and uh, I did get my first choice at Tigerberg which was brilliant um, didn't work too hard as an intern I really liked the um, this medical system at the University at the uh, Western Cape and um, proud sorry the Western Cape health um, it was just really well the system worked really well there and i mean you couldn't get into the tiger book hospital without a referral for example so i really appreciated that that system um i did enjoy cape town and i always ended up going to the beach by about three o'clock so i had a really good time i did not um i did not know what my passion you know were were at that time but um but yeah uh, i really enjoyed my
0: time there and then Tigerberg was your first choice to say Was there anything that you knew beforehand about it that made it stand out to you as a place for internship?
1: to be honest, not a lot. I mean, I wanted to be in an academic unit because I felt like um I wanted to be um, around i suppose mentors that could that could teach and train better than say just being left alone or in a very junior place. That was just my my feeling um as I say, I wanted to be in Cape Town, so I wasn't that fussy um I mean, Khuretuskiid was on the list, but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't my first choice. Um, also, I came from Pretoria with a, you know, Afrikaans sort of culture, and Tigerberg was also like that. So I knew I would get along and fit in well there. Um, and I'd already heard of people who had really enjoyed the time there. So I knew I was going to be happy. Okay, great. So,
0: so for you, it was referrals. It was uh, wanting to be in an academic environment yeah. so that you could still get continuing yeah. training and and oversight. Direct, yeah. all good reasons. And then, uh, you said that you did your comes back Karen in Joburg. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Well, so um, I met my wife pretty much just before I became an intern, <laughs> and uh, and and I didn't think I was going to have a long-term relationship with her, or for that matter, a, um, a long-distance relationship. But my full internship year was a long-distance relationship, and and then my dreams of being a Cape Townian were shattered because I knew she was going to be the one I was going to marry, and so she was working in Joburg. it's worthwhile. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, so then I decided. Okay, well, we, I'm going to go to job. Where am I going to go? And uh, and then I, I, I wasn't likely to get one of the academic big academic posts. Yeah. Um, and so I, I got a bit lucky getting um, a position at Hella Joseph and Rahima Musa. And I spent mostly time doing orthopedics and emergency medicine, which uh, were pretty good. I must say, they, uh, they're very valuable experiences to have, particularly in emergency medicine.
0: So it sounds like overall, being a junior doctor was a very enjoyable experience. Yeah. Uh, you didn't. Were there any challenges, thinking back to those days, any challenges that really got to you?
1: No, as I said, I think I was blessed to work in the Western Cape health system in my internship, and I didn't work particularly hard. I didn't struggle with sleeplessness because of working too many hours. I think a lot of people, depending on where they work, can be very difficult um, conditions. So in that respect, I was, I think, blessed. Um same with also Helen Joseph, it was still an academic hospital. So I was still f- pleased that it was in an academic sort of area. Um, yeah, to be honest, nothing jumps to mind as a particularly bad time. It was really a very good time for me. Fantastic. And then after being a junior doctor, you did some MO time. Tell yeah. us about that. So once I, call it, well, at least once I'd finished my comm service, I knew that probably surgery was my pass. And, um, but I didn't know exactly what specialty to focus on. Um, you know, you do your, your time in the big ones, general surgery, um, you know, gynae, but you don't spend a lot of time in the smaller ones. And so um, like, orthope- like um, ophthalmology, for example, or urology or, you know, pediatric surgery, plastic surgery, as, as doctors, junior people, you don't get a lot of exposure into that. And ENT was certainly one of those smaller ones. Um, to those of you who may remember, I mean, it's like two weeks, I think, in your training, um, and maybe as a fifth year or a fourth year, depending on the department you're in. So it's not a lot of exposure. And, um, so I decided that ENT seemed reasonable, but I applied with all of those previously mentioned disciplines and it was actually e- ENT that got back to me first. And so that door opened, you know, it's amazing how things work that way. You don't necessarily always have to know what you're going to do, um, but doors will open and some will close and, you know, you follow the path of opportunity. And so that was sort of was for me. And within a month, I knew mm, this is a really good discipline. It's a really good feel for me. Um, I like the idea of um, medicine and surgery being involved in lean teeth. Um, the, the statistics when I arrived there was that you're probably only operating on one out of every 13 patients. So, so you're actually primarily a physician of the head and neck. And um, you know, to this day, I say to people that if you don't know as a doctor what's going on in the head and neck, um, An ENT is a good person to know or refer to to answer a lot of those questions because um, we have a good understanding of anatomy and physiology in the head and neck. Um, so uh, that really appealed to me. Um, and then I went through the process, process of doing the outside time that uh, the colleges of medicine require um, in order to write your intermediates. What does is, what is outside time mean? Right. So um, for me, it was, I think, nearly two years. Um, so the college requires for surgical disciplines to spend time in both general surgery, uh, as well as um, typically trauma as well, as well as ICU. So those are prerequisites. Um, uh, I think it's really critical to spend time in particularly trauma and in ICU. It gives you a really good understanding about medicine and, you know, it's like putting you through the fire, really, and see, you know, where your metal lies, so to speak. And uh, I highly recommend any doctor, to be honest, not only surgeons, but any doctor to spend time in those fields. Maybe not for long because they are stressful and very difficult to do long term. Um, but the reality is that, um, you know, they make you who you are. So, um, yeah, a very valuable time. And, um, yeah, mostly all as sort of separate MO positions that you applied every sort of six months for kind of on your own. And, um, yeah, that was great. Okay, great. So you said you worked as a, as a medical officer at ENT. Yeah.
0: Your outside time? Yeah. Was that part of the MO time for ENT? Or did they then say, if you want to come back here, we want to see you go through this? Good question.
1: Yeah. So I think um, because I had built a good relationship with the professor um, at BITS, um, you know, he, he kind of guided that path for me that, you know, if I came back, I wouldn't have to do more medical officer time. that would be incorporated into my ENT. So I think the pre-, pre prerequisite for ENT was at least six months of medical officer time. So I didn't need to do that again because it kind of was incorporated. And so, yeah, when I applied, um, I think I got lucky once again. I think that's a stressful thing for everyone is once you've you you know, once you've now done your time and are you going to get a post and that's very stressful. You know, there's a lot of competition. You don't know, you know, what you need to do, um, who you need to know. Um, and so uh, once again, I think I was lucky because people left. And so there was multiple posts available. So I was one of, I think, three that got posts at that intake, which was, you know, fairly rare, you know, to have that many doctors leave. And so you know, once again, I think I was blessed in that regard, but it's very stressful to wait. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, is it worth the wait? You know, do you, if you can't get the discipline that you want, you know, should you try something else? And I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. Um, you know, i realise that with time, um, you know, you, you, like I said earlier about doors opening and doors closing, sometimes it's okay. You know, you have an idea in your mind that this is what you want to do it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that. So I think you need to be prepared to change plans. You know, <clears throat> I think it's important to know yourself and what your strengths are and ultimately, um, uh, whatever you do as a path will, will you'll be successful in, um, just on that note. I mean, I wasn't sure I was going to be a doctor and my father wanted me to be a doctor, but he was an engineer and, um, I think back now, and I was like, what if I what is, was going to be an engineer? I think uh, I think back all the skills that I have, intuitively what I'm passionate about and what I'm good at, I would have been fine as an engineer. So I would have been completely fine with that. So it's so interesting that you don't always have to make up your mind really, really early what you want to do. That's fantastic, your
0: bias, especially coming with the, the benefit of hindsight, Yeah, a little bit of the wisdom that comes with experience. Um, I think that that's something that we as junior doctors can definitely benefit from that that it's going to be okay if you don't get into that post that you want right now yeah. um and besides the six months of ent time were there any other courses uh was there any diplomas that would have given an advantage and now some certain disciplines once you to have done a diploma as yes. yes to to give you that advantage before you come in
1: yes so the, i remember doing a couple of courses you know the atls the PALS, um the surgical skills course those are all i think even prerequisites i don't know if they're you know Optional. I think that kind of you have to do them. I think they're all valuable. I mean, uh, I think we should be doing things as much as we can to upskill ourselves. um, You know, whether they're required or not. I think we should be having our feelers out to know, you know, where am I weak or where am I strong, and how can I improve that? So yeah, that's a great attitude to have. That's um, being a doctor is a commitment to lifelong learning,
0: yeah. and as as one of my mentors said that an MBBCH is a license to learn, not a license to practice. So, very nice. Very nice.
1: Yeah, you're actually learning only really starts when you, once you're qualified. I mean, uh, I know that some of you can debate about what learning really is, but, um, you know, yes, you can learn as much as you want from a book, but ultimately, experience cannot be replaced. You know, you want to be able to have good experience. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I agree with that completely. Okay, and then uh, reg time, you completed four years. Uh,
0: where did you do your registrar time so the
1: vit circuit rotation was helen joseph rahima musa my post my registrar post was actually there and then um Baragwanath as well as charlotte mcbeke and um i i really was drawn to one of the senior consultants at charlotte mcbeke professor pc modi he was really a big strong mentor of mine i really respected him a great deal a very wise man and ultimately uh I, I tried to spend as much time with them and I think I probably did spend more time at Charlotte McVeigh because of that. Um uh, so so I think that's another important thing to be thinking about is who do you look up to when you when you're training. You know, you'll see people who do things well and you'll see people who don't do things well and and for me it was very important to learn the right things from the right people. Um, you yeah, know, you do learn how not to do things from people um as well, which is important. Um but for me the value of that mentorship was really key, I think, to my my, I mean, my approach to medicine, and uh, did reg time include a certain
0: number of cases you had to do? Did you have to do a certain number of hours in theatre or clinical? What, what was the requirements? Uh, um, you know, what were the requirements to complete your reg time besides just passing exams and being competent?
1: Yeah, so um, ultimately, in order to qualify for the college, because that's essentially the 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 Body that you register with the colleges of medicine of South Africa, and um, with the requirements is to have a logbook, so you do have to have a certain amount of uh, you know, um, operations done over that period. Um, usually as either the assistant or the first assistant or the primary surgeon, so there is a thorough list that you have to submit at the end of your time. Are some surgeries more highly regarded than others? Like, can you just do grommets for four years? No, yeah, no, there's a there's a there's a there's a list of all ranges. Of course, some of them are more complicated and some of them are more rare, for, for example. You don't need to do them all the time. Um, but yeah, there's a certain amount for each procedure. Um, uh, it wasn't a prerequisite when I was there, but um, there's been a push from the HPCSA to get um, you know, M-Meds under the belt. Um, and so the university essentially will give that extra accreditation where you want to now do a research report or a thesis I think that's really important, it's valuable. Um, you know, certainly it's not been one of my personal strengths. I think that in general there's been a weakness of South African medicine is that we don't prioritize evidence-based research as much as maybe the first world will do. Maybe it's resources, I don't know. You know, you really need time and money to be able to do good research and, you know, we do have some limitations in our public sectors. So, yeah, I've, I've but- heard that some, some people saying
0: that just our sheer patient volume yeah, uh, really hinders any Correct. kind of good
1: academic work. Correct. You really need to budget the time to actually do research. It's time consuming, you know, and it's a skill that you need to learn. It's not intuitive. You actually need to start thinking in a different way in order to do good research. And to... so, so so, that was something that I did do, but I actually never did, never finished. Um, so I don't actually have an M.M.Ed when I qualified. All I have is a fellow of the College of, of uh, Medicine for otorhinolaryngology, um, but I think that it is a good thing, I think that people should be spending time doing it, um, it just helps you to be thinking more critically, you know, when you continue your learning, as you said, for the rest of your career. If somebody wants to do an MMed med an ENT now, what kind of uh,
0: options are there, what areas of interest are kind of burgeoning fields within the South African, uh, well, I don't want to say market, but the South African healthcare system?
1: Hmm,
0: good question. Um, I'm not sure. Are there any unanswered questions?
1: In- what is it? <laughs> I mean, there's a thousand things that studies could be done on. I mean, the, the idea of a behind a research report is not necessarily to, you know, advance your field uh, specifically. You know, you, you the point of a thesis like that is really just to get a basic understanding of s- how science is performed. So you don't have to do anything revolutionary. You know, you just have to get an idea of the process. And I think that's a stepping stone for something for the future. I mean, the idea behind PhDs and, uh, essentially is like try to really advance the field. So I don't know if that answers your question. Nothing jumps to mind or something that, uh, you know, I mean, there's work to be done in every field all the time. Okay, well, let's shift back to your particular mm.
0: uh, field of interest mm. and your focus of where you would like to work. Yeah. Um, so first of all, sell to us ENT. This <laughs> is your your advert for your specialty. Uh, if a junior doctor or a medical student was listening and wanted to find out Besides just opening doors and what opportunities come up, what is really the draw card of ENT? Uh, maybe even talk to what is ENT about? Because we might have a preconceived idea based on our two weeks of uh, exposure, yeah. which I agree is nowhere near a, a, a true reflection of what a specialty is. So tell us what ENT is and why ENT is a good choice for a doctor.
1: So I think I set it up already with the idea that it's actually being about being a physician of the head and neck. And it's a wonderful mix between being a physician and a surgeon. Um, so I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a surgeon and um, and also was appealed by the complex anatomy. So some people shy away from that anatomy, you know, be there as may, it was interesting and complex for me. So I like the challenge. Um, also, one of the factors that people will ask and think about is what are the after hours work like? You know, when you're... Uh, What's we... the life? Yeah. Exactly. You know, you don't want to have to necessarily pick a profession that you're going to be working 14 hour days for the rest of your life. Um, look as you enter the private sector, you know, you generally have a bit more freedom about how to choose your hours. Um, but the reality is that I didn't want to be uh, working in a profession where there was a high chance of me getting called out every night. So, you know, orthopedic surgery, for example, or general surgery or... Um, Guyini, those are fields that I pretty much ticked off my box personally pretty early. ENT does have its fair share of emergencies, no doubt, and some of them are fairly um, you know life threatening. But the reality is that um, that was an important factor for me. Um, you know, my particular area of interest, as you mentioned, is moved towards head and neck surgery. So. It's interesting because um, I I certainly enjoy ENT, but I don't often call myself an ENT anymore as much as I used to. I consider myself now a head and neck surgeon. Now, uh, a lot of people hear that term and they don't really know what it means. Um, It's it's a bit of confusion because there's a lot of overlap with a lot of other disciplines. Uh, Such as? All right. So so typically, general surgery have traditionally always been the field to do things like salivary surgery, salivary gland surgery and thyroid surgery. there, there has been a move over the past many years um, for ENTs to take over the role of the head and neck surgeon, mostly because of our ability to examine the upper airways really well with scopes. Okay. General surgeons do not examine the nasopharynx or the hypopharynx. So well, they scopes from the elementary canal and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, it's our it's our we were positioned when the technology arrived for for us to to take over that role. Um, I think in general, the general surgeons have been somewhat reluctant worldwide to com- to completely relinquish control to an ENT. But actually, as I said, I think it's more, um, not so much necessarily ENT, but more a separate discipline all on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, the other field uh, that also is involved often is maxillofacial surgery. So a lot of um, dentists, for example, will refer to a max when they see something in the mouth or something that's unusual. Um, max facs, uh, thats that's a, quite a broad discipline as well, so you get lots of different things that you do in MaxVac, And one of them is uh, is oncology, or, um, and or tumours. And so, um, so there's that link between those three primary uh, traditional surgeons uh, in the head and neck. And so those three really, where I think that the combination comes to to be called a head and neck surgeon. Would all three
0: be part of a? Could all three be same part of the same MDT? Um, Very nice LS- cell. Would you say, because I am a head and neck surgeon with ENT training, I don't necessarily need to have a max patch because we're going to have the same set of skills?
1: Yeah, a very good question. I think you touched on something that's really critical and valuable, and that's MDTs, multidisciplinary teams. So the evidence is pretty clear now worldwide that in order to get the best outcomes, particularly for surgery, uh, for uh, cancer, sorry, um, not only best outcomes uh, from a cancer perspective, but also a quality of life perspective, you need to be thinking about the team holistically, uh, about the patient holistically, and ultimately, what can you do before treatment commences to optimize outcomes? So um, max Back have also a critical role to do with um, things like um, reconstruction of dental when I, for example, cut out a jaw. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not necessarily be removing the jaw, but obviously we want to rehabilitate people, for example. and so. Um, dentition is important and so the maxfac may be required to for example do implants in the fibula prosthesis uh, fibula uh, reconstruction so so there is critically a member of the uh, of the um, MDTs uh, which are maxfacs as well as general surgeons for example pegs uh, we have the need for pegs sometimes for swallowing um, so yeah i don't think you can do everything yourself so but... right. so while, so while we we're joking about like oh you know
0: growing scopes and taking territory from other uh specialists, you know, like as you say, the MDT works together for the benefit of the patients. And at some point you have to say, you know, it's, you know, who would be brilliant at this? My colleague in this department. Correct. So we work together for the benefit of our
1: patients. Patients love that. Really. They appreciate it when you're thinking about them holistically and that they, they realize that you're, you're not in it for yourself and the patient is the reason you're in it. And in working in teams ultimately holds everyone accountable and, um, and you're all sharing the responsibilities of managing patients. Um, and um, yeah, it's really nothing but good. Fantastic.
0: So, um, what are some of the pitfalls or negatives of being an ENT? You've mentioned some of the the scope of where you practice. Uh, what are some
1: of the the challenges of being an ENT? So, I think one of the one of the I think problems is more a head and neck surgeon. Yeah, I did, the, yeah, to the distinguish. The distinguish. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things is um, to know your limitations. So. For example, you as a registrar will learn the basics of ear surgery, sinus surgery, and head and neck surgery. But in order to really, really do that well, um, it's such a big field actually, head and neck and ENT, that um, I think in order to do excellent work, um, you kind of should be trying to super-specialize. And I'm not saying there's never going to be a role for a general ENT, of course there are, but and I think that's one, one of the things that um, I've seen value in is I'd rather personally be you know, a master of one rather than a jack of all trades, you know, but everyone is different. So, um, as far as, as I say, quality of life perspective is is very good for an ENT. I think, um, you know, for family life, it's not overwhelming. And so that's a benefit. Um, as far as the negative goes, I can't think of very much else. Um, you know, I'm passionate about my work. I know where my strengths lie. I think any negative could be coming from the fact that maybe you're not working in your passion or not working in your proficiency. I think that's a challenge of every human being, really. I mean, we work to serve others. I mean, we should be focusing on other people rather than ourselves. And then um, the money that we earn is a consequence of the service to others. And I think um, that's something we should always be keeping in mind. And in order to serve others well, we should be using our skills and our ability um, that we're good at and that we're interested in um, to do that. And that's where we feel most fulfilled. So I think you know the challenge is finding that over time it's not it's not intuitive easily very good i love that the serving and then uh the enjoyment parts
0: obviously you derive benefit from being paid for your work but um if you were just working for money there would be no joy attached to it at all yeah. um being in medicine can be incredibly rewarding um but it can also be extremely taxing if you're in the wrong uh, field like you say when you you feel like it's a drudgery or a bore. so um what are some of the positives from um being in your specialty with head and neck, some of the, the personal highlights, maybe some, some stories that can share uh, a bit of, I don't know, the human side of
1: yeah. neck. And... Well, look, obviously I treat cancer. Cancer can be heavy. I mean, cancer affects the family more than just about any other thing. The reality is that we all suffer in this world. We all struggle with something. Um, there will be some degree of health struggles in everyone's life. The reality is we all die. Um, and know, uh, when when you're dealing with cancer, it's it's very much in, you know, f- for lack of a better term, in your face with head and neck. Um, so it's got a very big social impact. Um, patients themselves have taught me a lot how to suffer well. You know, because I think that's a noble goal. Um, you know, you, you aim to achieve the cure at the end of the road, but sometimes it's not achievable. I think that's something that I've had to come to terms with psychologically. Is you can't cure everyone, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how good a team player you are. Some people just don't do well, but I think that we, uh, you know, think that I've get gotten great satisfaction helping patients guide guide them through this difficult time. You know, giving them hope. I mean, there's always hope. We don't have control over everything. We don't. There's no certainty in this world, but we can certainly give them clarity. And I think that's what patients appreciate a lot, is when you're not clear in your ability to communicate what you know. um, That creates discontent and um, and frustration. So as a doctor, I think. You have got to be able to communicate very well, and I think that's not something you practice intu- easily. You know, you got to actually do it intentionally. And so, um, I think the biggest take you know take home messages I have from patients is that um, we all suffer, but we should be trying to suffer well. And um, you know, I can think of a thousand stories. Um, some of them end well, some of them don't. You know, and yet I've learned something. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a well,
0: one thing that came to mind while we were speaking was the importance of emotional uh, maturity and intelligence mm-hmm. we speak about eq being yeah. as important as your iq is yeah. daniel goldman yeah is yeah. eq something that you think people are born with is it something that we can mature in is it something that comes with experience what what for you can help um, us as physicians and surgeons to really improve our emotional uh, empathy mm-hmm.
1: and sensitivity to our patients yeah a very good question i think um it's really critical. I mean, the science reveals how some people can be successful uh, with an extremely high EQ but not necessarily high IQ. So it is something that I think some people are stronger at than others. Um, I think that you know, you're both you're both correct. I mean, you can be born with it, but it's certainly a skill that you can learn. Um, you know how to do it. I mean, ultimately, the first step is to become aware of your own feelings and your own emotions. And so, introspection is very important to know yourself well. I think is really good. Um, you know, um, in the Bible, it talks about uh, quick to listen, slow to speak. This is a very important principle. Ultimately, how to give in two ears of one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think that we generally like to talk too much. So the moment we start to listen more, um, I think we have better empathy. Um, yeah, you can read Daniel Goldman's book on EQ. It's a it's a really good one. So what would a normal
0: uh, work week look like for you? You're in both private as well as public at Steve Biko um what's how much time are you spending in theater what's your consulting hours like
1: yeah good question day-to-day living i mean uh, so on average a surgeon is going to be spending time in the wards in theater in consulting um uh, you mentioned my time at steve bico i particularly have a passion and interest in teaching and training i think i've been well mentored by a number of mentors i mentioned one i have others and ultimately i feel like you know like a river we've got to pass that knowledge down um so that's the reason I spend time there, and that's one day a week for me. Um, session employee there. Um, okay, so that's actually a paid... paid
0: Direct. Direct, sadly, on that. It's not very. Like you sacrifice... Well, I mean, you sacrifice your time. I they don't pay well. <laughs> <laughs> what I what meant to say is, is that, uh, you know, you, you're doing that, but it's not like voluntary work. Like, Correct. It's, you have a passion for teaching, Correct. You've taken that on board, and it's obviously taking you away from your private practice. Correct. Um, but there is um, the possibility to have a foot in... In both systems, so to speak.
1: Correct. I think that is probably the best way to do it. So, in the in the, I think every surgeon or any doctor really, when they when they potentially um, qualify, they're going to be tempted to either spend time in the public sector and potentially do part time work in the private sector. I think that's extremely difficult to do it that way. I think um, you know to be available in the private sector uh, is very difficult if you're mostly supposed to be in. in the public sector. so, so, the reality is that what I feel I am doing is a better way to to deal with it. You spend full time in the private sector and then you if the posts are available, if the sessions are available, um, which is not always the case depending on where you work, uh, then um part- time in the in the public sector is better. I think um, I personally don't agree with doctors who spend time supposed to be full- time in the public sector and they have a private practice and then they end up leaving their private practice. Uh, or their public public service way too early during the day. So I'm sure everyone has seen this. Um, it's a real problem. We call that RWAPS, but it is not well. Um, mm-hmm. It's not well monitored. What is R what? remuneration? Um, uh, R- I can't remember. But it basically means somebody who is like you. You are drawing that public service salary. at yes, and, the, and like you can. AM and yes, and you can work in. It's allowed. It's legal as long as it's done in a legal way. But um, it's not well monitored, and so people end up taking advantage. And so it is a problem. Um, so if people are interested in being involved in both, as I say, I recommend rather full time private and then and then volunteer your time in a part time capacity. Okay. So you say one day a week at Steve Beaco, is that correct? Kind of from eight to five the whole day? Pretty much, yeah. I'm uh, I'm good have a good relationship, a good contact with the senior people there. And so, you know, they, they discuss cases with me during the course of a week. We plan cases, um, and so so it helps to have a good team in that system. Um, just regarding the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Um, ultimately, um, my my day usually starts with the w- ward round, and then um, during the course of the morning, um, I'm either operating or I'm either consulting. Um, you don't know really how much time you need to do either, but um, the reality is that you've got to see patients in the rooms in order to book them for theater. Um, so uh, I personally do believe in a good quality of life. So I, I'm one of those people that don't believe, um, you know, working 10 hour days is good enough. You don't yeah. work weekend. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> uh, I've intentionally made very strict boundaries in my lifestyle so that, um, you know, my, my patients know, my family knows know, uh, when, when and where I'm working. So I work hard, but not super long. Um, when I'm at home, I'm in with my family, hopefully not interrupted too often by emergencies. Um, so I think that's quite important to have good boundaries. I think that's a discipline um, that basically you have to be able to put boundaries
0: in place, um, as you mentioned, for the sake of your family, even for your patients. You know that yeah. they know they're going to get the best of you when you're there. Yeah. You're not going to be pulled away because you uh, left an important family function <laughs> to come to work. Yeah. Um, that's very good advice. Um, and then in your private practice, is it the same kind of splits between theatre time and, and private consulting in your rooms?
1: So I operate one full day a, a, a week, but I usually also share a list with a colleague on a, on a, on a on half a theatre day, uh, And then it's usually the rest of the time is consulting. So, you know, mostly it seems to be about half I'm busy consulting, half I'm busy operating. And then, as I say, the one one day a week I'm in the public sector. So in the public
0: sector, patients will kind of get allocated to you. Uh, in the private sector, obviously your reputation is very important. People might get to refer to you by friends, Um, but is there ever any like argy-bargy between uh, surgeons in the same hospital or trying to get patients like are you ever um, I want to say competitive with
1: other surgeons yeah very good question I think um, when you enter the private practice one of the first stresses is where am I going to work and then you'll find pretty quick that there are some people that don't want you to work with them Um, so that's the first challenge is to actually get a position in the private sector hospital so that's a that's a stressful time. Um, Does it help building connections when you I think so. Like, Definitely. Absolutely. I think that's uh, never burn your bridges, sure. everyone with respect and honor because trust me, you're going to be working with those people for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, don't, don't, be, don't be mean. Trust me. Um, so um, so once you've essentially got a position in a private hospital, I think what is important is your camaraderie with your colleagues. Um, one of the problems with the private sector is that you're very isolated. You're very alone. You know, you're not working in a team, you know, with seniors and juniors anymore. You're on your own. And so one of the risks is you're not countable to anyone. And I think the best doctors are the ones that engage with their colleagues and work with their colleagues, not only in their own field, but in other fields as well. Um, I'm very blessed to work in a really good hospital where the camaraderie amongst the ENTs is excellent. Uh, we all get along super well. And also the, the, the camaraderie with the other disciplines where we help each other out, where we refer to each other easily and willingly and if there's trouble we help each other and so I don't believe all hospitals are that way you know Um, so uh, yeah as I say we're blessed to be um, blessed to be here for that reason Do you think it would be better to be a small fish
0: in a big pond like a a center that's known for your specialty or would you rather be a big fish in a little pond maybe heading up a unit somewhere um, and then it being known as the go-to guy even if it means you're further out Yeah, good
1: question uh so i have some personal experience with that when i when i because i after my reg time i did have a full-time public sector position for three nearly four years i think um and then i knew that it was going to be a time where i was going to have to enter the private sector and i knew i was going to be a head and neck surgeon um morningside is known because of two previous senior colleagues um to have built a reputation of being a really good head and neck unit and I actually did not get uh, fellowships after I qualified as an ENT in head and neck. I tried and failed. Um, I was very disheartened. Um, to get fellowships abroad is very costly and very competitive. Um, I didn't really know the right people in order to get those positions. Um, and so I was a little re- politics uh, involved in, in getting those places. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was trying Canada, the UK, um, New Zealand, Australia, all over those places and you know, you, as I say, I think it really comes down to who you know. And, um, and, and I think that anyway, I was very disappointed. I didn't get those posts, but once again, I didn't give up. I felt like head and neck was my path. And so I did start affiliating myself with, um, my senior colleague here at Morningside, professor Chris Joseph. And so he was one of my mentors and he was really happy to to teach and and into, um, and I was willing to learn, um, but. I didn't primarily start working here I actually uh, when I left I opened a private practice in Union in Alberton and that's where I could find a hospital to work and so um, I thought I was going to do head and neck there and so that was um, the beginnings of trying to trying to build a head and neck unit there which wasn't established and it was actually very difficult I realized that you know no matter how good you think you are you still need the support of the ICU and the physicians and the Medical psychologist in some hospital. Not really. It's just that um, to build something just takes time, you know. And I think if I had stuck to it and I, if I had, um, you know, persisted, it would have happened. But uh, because of my relationship with my senior colleague, um, um, he eventually said, "Come here," and so that's why I came to Morningside. And ultimately, we've been working together ever since. And so. I think ultimately when you have a super specialty if you do want to be working in a place that has as much volume as possible. You know, high volume centers, you 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 no doubt going to get more work and the better you become, the fewer problems you have, the less risk there is. Um I think one of the most dangerous things for is the occasional surgeon, especially if it's um you know a very tricky problem. So I think every doctor should be aware of that. Um every patient should be aware of that, not that they know that all the time, but yeah. So
0: already from our conversation, we've kind of alluded to it, but South Africa is a country with almost two parallel healthcare systems. Yes, The private uh, sector taking about 80% of the resources and the annual spend for uh, a little less than one-fifth of the patients. Um, If you were to compare working in public and working in private, um, can we just discuss some of the differences, some of the challenges? What, What do you see? And especially with a view towards five years' time when we were uh, yeah. supposed to start NHI and yeah. and how you see that might. Maybe I can draw you out a little bit on on uh, your thoughts on
1: NHI and what that means yeah. for the future of South Africa. Yeah, I was out being controversial. <laughs> Put your own neck on the line. No problem. Yeah, look, I think uh, it's stressful for a lot of people. What does it mean? I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, there's also no clarity right now about uh, from our government in particular about how things are going to work. So I think that that is reason for the stress and anxiety. Um, yeah, the public and the private systems are very different systems. Um, the reality is, as you said, there's more money in the private system. People pay a lot of money to be part of medical aids, and I think our Minister of Health doesn't like the idea that all that money is going to private systems. Um, yeah, but it is—it is patients' own money. You know, they have the right to choose where they want to spend their money. You know, um, it would be wonderful if we all knew that the resources in the public sector would be better. I think it is the responsibility of the government to improve the quality of resources in the public sector before NHI could be implemented. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, as I say, one of the reasons I left the public sector is because I knew uh, certainly with head and neck, there were certain things that I could not do in the public sector that I knew could be done in the private just because of the equipment, for example. So so that's ultimately, new, uh, ultimately why I knew I had to leave. Um, um, you know, the business of medicine is a tricky thing. Uh, I think that, um, you know, we there's always going to be a natural tension between the business of medicine and, and yeah, then you want to be altruistic and help yeah. people and be generous, but at the same time you need to
0: put your children to school, yeah, put food on the table.
1: Um, and maybe I can move this conversation on towards um, something that I think is also quite important to understand, and that's um, you know what what has happened to capitalism. <laughs> I mean, I'm reading a book, uh, still haven't finished it. Um, some of you may know it's Simon Sinek's um, um, uh, the infinite the infinite game. Uh-huh. Um, Very cool book talking about um, having either an infinite or a finite mindset. Um, Look, essentially, capitalism in principle is a really good thing. I mean, ultimately, um, someone needs something, someone can provide that something. It's mutually beneficial to both. Um, You know, with industrialization, We found ways to try and become more efficient at doing that. And then ultimately greed eventually sets in where how can you be more efficient and how can you squeeze more money out of that? Any strength taken to the extreme creates
0: a weakness in every that's Some guy who manages to gain the system and then generates four hundred
1: billion dollars of personal wealth and starts to say, Okay, maybe you can share a little bit with you. Spot on. Okay. So um so basically um you know, one of the one of the issues though is that I lost my train of thought. So we were speaking about how
0: capital yes, cap- generates opportunity to yes, you know, for personal advancement and also for innovation. Yes. Um, and how that relates now to healthcare. Yes. Yeah. And how, uh, as a as a medical professional, like you, you have to generate yeah uh, an income. Yeah, yeah. I've still lost my month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Maybe I can just re retrace our steps a little bit. So go, go. we were saying about how um, so I I, I asked you to to kind of venture out into the public versus private. Yeah, um, yeah. And then things are supposed to go forward. You, you then spoke to the challenges of the public system where, for example, there was just not the right equipment to do what you wanted to for patients. Yeah. And then NHI, in theory, is a wonderful idea. And, and I would agree with you. I think there's so many people who need access to good healthcare. I think that it's almost farcical that two thirds of specialists are in a system that only helps one fifth of the patients. But at the same time, you can't blame um, doctors for wanting to have a meaningful career. Um, we work long hours. We study for long years to get where we are. And it's not our problem that there are such systemic failures. Mm. Um, South Africa, I believe, only has one doctor for every 3,200 patients. I think that's the, the recent stats. And it's getting worse because of a brain drain. Uh, I don't know if this is now helps to, to jog their Henry, If not, if we can always move on.
1: Yes, I finally remembered. You huh, found the string. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, so, so I think one of the things that um, the book highlighted to me was why did capitalism really go wrong? And I think uh, it stemmed from an uh, 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 actual Nobel Prize winner, Milton Friedman. He's an economist who wrote a paper. Um, was he the reason it went wrong? I believe so. I mean, this is the guy. This is the this is what the guy in the book Simon Sinek argues that um, this is what destroyed capitalism as we know it. Um, in 1970, he wrote this paper, and pretty much in that paper, he said that the purpose of you being in business is for the for the benefit of the shareholder, whereas everyone up until 1970 apparently always thought that capitalism is about the benefit of the consumer. Wow. Yeah. That mindset, that handout exactly. Completely. And so what has that done? Well, ultimately, that's what's made um, I'm in business for myself and for the people who I must support as my investors. And so we've seen it in every industry. I mean, we can all, we feel it viscerally that, you know, something not quite right with our world. And it's about the fact that our priorities have now shifted away from how do we serve others uh, the best we can to how much can we get? We can, unfortunately, we see it politically. We see it financially. And so, ultimately, um, we, we always have to be, I think, remembering that we are in it for our consumers and for us, it's obviously our patients. patients yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I have a love-hate relationship with the funders. Uh, the funders are critically important. You know, medica- medical aid is, well, um, healthcare is very expensive. It always is. Uh, every year goes up higher than inflation, um, especially in cancer care. It's really expensive. Um is that because we're finding new ways to catch cancer? Yeah, I cancer. think technology has a part to play for that. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the cost is so high is because of the administration, you know, that just oh, the, really, yeah, the, yeah, the somebody the has data kept yeah, exactly. somebody has to print forms and mm-hmm. all, it's yeah. discovery spend, spend a fortune on administration. So um so ultimately um I've lost my train of thought again. So you say
0: ultimately we're working for shareholders, the CRM yeah, is yeah. maybe a little bit bloated because there's all of these other um, structures in place that come mm-hmm. with this, yeah, like a, a, along with the administration of it. You've got actuaries trying to calculate things. You've got people with
1: big have data, data. Correct. And, and then ultimately, when the, when the funders come to you and they say um, that um, we will pay you this amount for this amount of work, it you make you you think that it's fair. You think that it's right, but the reality is that um, it's it's not. That you're worth a lot more than you realize. And uh, it's your choice to decide, well, am I worth what the funders tell me I'm worth or are you worth more than that? And so I think it is a responsibility of every doctor when they enter the private sector to try and understand that system. It's complicated, it's difficult. Um, you know, whatever uh, discipline one chooses, there are societies involved. You know, like there's the ENT society. And in fact, that's one of the things that I, I'm on the ex- executive committee of the ENT society, particularly in the coding uh, committee. To understand coding and understand um, how to bill properly, um, you know. So uh, I think it's important that every doctor realizes that they can't stick their head in their sand with regards to how to code, how to bill. And um, I think it's it's wise to be understanding the business of medicine. You don't have to explain, understand everything completely, but I think it's important that um, you don't make it someone else's problem. You know, that's one of the things why I got involved, is I realized it was a real problem. And um, and I realized, well, if you know, no one else is going to do it, someone's got to do it. And um, I think we should all be having that sort of mindset. It's clear that that's one of your, your passions. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is the solution maybe lying in getting more
0: involvement from the actual doctors yes. and the medical professionals themselves, correct? And uh, I don't know how the system works. Are there medical professionals contracted in as advantages? or Are they drawing from our experience on the ground? Like, how does it actually work?
1: Yeah, so the, the funders often don't pay doctors to be medical advisors. They often will pay relatively junior medical practitioners, so sometimes nurses or, you know, GPs. Um, But they don't have really, really good financial advisors, uh, or at least, sorry, medical advisors. So how's a GP supposed to describe the intricacies of being a head and neck suit? Correct, 100%. And then this is a problem. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, when you enter the private sector, you've all heard of things called author, you have to get authorization you know, and then you have to then motivate for things to get done. I mean, these are all, for lack of a better word, bureaucratic ways to control the system. Um, but it is a complex system, uh, by no means is it easy to understand. Um, but I think that, as I say, for individually, we all need to do something to try and understand and be involved in that system. Um, I think if we, if we in, you know, involved with societies, ultimately the value of the societies is to stick together. And then ultimately you know, challenge the, the the big guys um with the big data i think that's another thing we all need to do is we actually have to collect our own data mm-hmm. you know the private sector does not do well collecting its data um you know there's no legislation for it we don't have to prove to anyone how good we are you know hpcsa gives us a degree and says you're good but we all know some are better than others you know and so to be cpd and stuff along the way correct sure that's important but. Um, but yeah, I think that we have to actually start measuring outcomes that matter to patients. And so that's a responsibility that we should all have. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done there. What about things like Google Review? We live in the age where it's just so easy for somebody to
0: share their experience and yeah. to even go viral. Somebody can yeah. complain about you on social media. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you've helped 10,000 people, one person who left disgruntled. Do you think there's a place for that? I mean, When I looked at the Google Reviews for this hospital, for example, mm-hmm. I was amazed that's how many five star reviews there are and then for how many one star the reviews if you with kinda of no middle ground.
1: That's isn't that the case with all things? Like if you look at Amazon, you know, if you're only super happy then you'll put a five year and it's normally the people who are terribly miserable it'll, Well, yeah. I mean people
0: most most people aren't motivated yes, to review a hospital exactly. unless they're either super happy or very, very obsessed. Okay. So and and do you think that's there's any value to that i mean you were talking about measuring outcomes that matter to patients yeah. uh, is the outcome kind of as they're walking out how they feel is that worthwhile or do we need to um, analyze a little bit deeper
1: based on maybe their long-term mm. mortality long-term ability yeah. things like that definitely so i think outcomes can get can get very complicated but as you as we just said it's about the ones that matter to the patient so as you correctly said how they feel when they leave the hospital how soon it is that they get back to work, you know? How mobile are they? Can they talk properly? Can they swallow properly? These are all very important things. The MDT coming back into it, hundred percent, exactly. You know, for me as the cancer surgeon or the head and neck surgeon, um, I'm always thinking about overall survival. You know, five year survival, d- d- disease free progression. All of these things are critical. Uh, and we, I know, I, I individually, you know, check my own numbers, but I think corporately as a group, we still got a lot of room to, to, to. Or at least he's got a still a lot of work to do in order to be able to connect all that data for all the different disciplines and bring it together. You know, um, can get very expensive and complicated with different IT systems. But you know, we're trying to keep it simple. Um, But we're not there yet. You know, Um, surprisingly, in this country, there's still no legislation regarding electronic patient records. Uh, I think it's just because it's so expensive, you know, in America. Yeah, we don't, we've got load shedding. We don't really have a reliable
0: <laughs> power supply. Unless you have big UPSs to drive you know, your vent yeah. to capture a computer. Um, but if you see the experience of our colleagues in America, like they have a lot of frustration with electronic <laughs> health record. And the admin burden is very high. Yeah. And, and again, coming back to billing, how you bill and you have to have certain things, otherwise you're not going to get paid. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple more questions. This has been a really enlightening conversation so far, really engaging. I'm just so grateful for um, your extra insights into so much more than just ENT and head and neck. So thank you so much for that. Um, I really mean it from a junior doctor point of view. It's nice to see uh, someone so passionate about things that are really gonna affect us in a few years time. And uh, I wanna take the next question in that direction. Within head and neck and ENT, What is kind of like um, the evolving, changing landscape for your specialty? What do you see in the next 10 years really um, happening? Because our generation is going to come after you. And what's going to change for us? Will there be more robotic surgery? Will there be more um, kind of telemedicine involved? What are some of the things that you see happening?
1: For sure. So I think technology is always going to be a big part of how we progress. Um, Obviously, the basics will still be in place. Um, You know, ENT is predominantly, okay, either rhinology skull base, um, pediatric ENT, um, then there's um, head and neck surgery, and um, which one I've forgotten? Otology and neurootology. So so they're all very super specialized disciplines on their own, and the technology, particularly in image capturing, is ever-improving. Um, so so I think that's going to be, because we do rely quite heavily on scopes and and cameras, things like that, so that's going to be ever-increasing um, improvement there. Um, I think the future of medicine, really in general, and it's going to involve my field as well. But it's it's essentially the the team approach, where um, you know, it's obvious in head and neck, where as I say, we've got patient at the centre, but um, we also have to get patients um, involved in prostodontic care, swallow therapy care, physio care, and so that multidisciplinary team approach is very valuable in my field. Maybe a little less obvious in some of the others. For example, in otology, okay, you might work with an audiologist. Uh, But still, I think the trusting team approach is going to become more and more important. I think the hospital groups eventually are going to have to adapt to that because um, not every hospital should be doing everything, if you ask me. Mm. You know, some hospitals are already stronger at some things and not others. But I think the philosophy still in this country is about being a friendly neighborhood hospital that can do everything. You don't need to go anywhere else. I think that's going to fall away eventually. I think there's going to be head and neck hospitals. There's going to be, there's already eye hospitals and there's already urology hospitals, but there's going to be these specialized centers of hospitals where the multidisciplinary team is involved. Um, I think going forward, I think we need as junior doctors to be thinking, how do we work in teams? I think we're not going to be alone in the future. We're going to be having to think and work in teams um, and be leaders of those teams. Um, so I think that is, is hopeful. I mean, that's going to make, make us better doctors, really. That's tremendous.
0: And and if you were to really shape the mindsets of junior doctors and medical students now, what is something that you'd love for them to know? What is something you'd like them to embrace? A uh, kind of like what's just sounding off. Your parting words it's to to junior doctors, um, especially because they might not see you for very long in the ward with the two week exposure to ENT. Uh, if you want to leave an indelible mark on on people's hearts and minds, so what is it that you can yeah
1: well i think i already mentioned one is ever have an attitude of serving others you know thinking about others first i think is really important um as i said earlier to communicate to learn to communicate to have emotional intelligence is really important those things have held me in good stead I, i believe um one of the others is just to stay curious i think it's really important to be curious to ask questions not in a not in a mean way but in a kind way both of your patients and your colleagues um you know curiosity is i think foundational to advancing field um you know coming back to maybe empathy but humility i think the best surgeons are the humble ones that are a bit, that they have the ability to accept when they're wrong admit when they're wrong um you know you have to have people you trust to work with as i mentioned trusting teams you know it's very difficult to be trusting in the people that you don't trust so um so build people around you that are trustworthy and um yeah, I think that would probably be my my final thoughts. Um, so,
0: if people did want to reach out to you uh, to learn more a little bit a little bit about head and neck, um, about the cancers that you treat, about ENT yeah. as a specialty. Uh, do you have any socials we can follow you on uh, how do people get a hold of you if, if you can make yourself available to them
1: so I'm a child of the 70s man I was born in the 70s so I'm not super strong on the social media <laughs> I have a website will that help yeah probably <laughs> I think it's Dr Torres Holmes uh, uh, he's for, just reaching for it for God. yeah exactly <laughs> Dr Torres Holmes that's uh, .ca.za um, put that in the show notes thank that's you excellent point. I actually have recently started a blog um, uh, basically i um, I think it's my responsibility as a head and neck surgeon to help um, fellow colleagues understand our discipline better. So I started a blog on my website where it's basically focused on my referral uh, patients, um, my referral base rather, you know, GPs, uh, things like that. Uh, So one final thing,
0: Dr. Mark, if students were wanting to do an elective with you Mm. in ENT or head and neck surgery, um, how can they get a hold of you and how can they go about doing the elective? Do you have any requirements, any prerequisite reading that they do before they
1: come and work with you no not really no pre-roll <laughs> <zones are> <laughs> levels actually not <laughs> <the zones. laughs> i blame my two-week exposure. yeah yeah in fact the general surgeons call them zones and uh head and neck surgeons call them levels. anyway uh you know there's no prerequisites i have had a couple of people ask and i've had some uh you know the pleasure of uh, having people um shadow me in theater as well as in the rooms and you know, I often talk too much, so I think they enjoy their time with me, I hope. Um, uh, my contact might it probably is going to be best through my rooms, so... What um, does details? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for making yourself available. It's been an absolute pleasure
0: to pick your brains, get your, your thinking on some uh, important matters, not just related to your specialty. Uh, It's been an absolute blessing to get ready your experience, your wisdom, and to just get a little bit of view on the podcast. So thank you for being on the Dr. Coffee podcast. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future.
1: Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. All the best, guys.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. Full links to websites and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode. If you know of a consultant or a senior registrar in a specialty that you would like to be featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube with the username at drcoffeeza. If you've got anything else on your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The Dr. Coffee podcast is brand new and freshly brewed each week with you in mind. Please consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy it. You can also help by posting a picture of your favourite warming beverage on Instagram with the hashtag howsitbrew, that's brew with an E-W at the end, and mentioning at drcoffeeza. We'll repost every mention to our story. Thank you so much
1: for your support.